You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 5. And before we read, we will pray together. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which is so clear to us, and you have given us so many rich treasures in it that we can enjoy, that we can see. You have strengthened our hope. You have given us confidence in your ability to keep your word. We thank you, O God, that we have trusted in Christ through your word and that you have made known yourself to us and your grace. We pray that you would help us now to think clearly about the things which are before us. And in this time, as we study and think together, we pray that you would unite our hearts in love and in unity and in compassion and passion for one another. We pray that you would be pleased with what we study and how we speak of these things, and we ask that you would help us to think clearly and be our guide and our teacher. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. That was our text last week, and we're not going to um, stray far from that. I mentioned last week that maybe this week we would talk about the timing of the resurrection. We talked about the nature of the resurrection, that it's bodily, that it's certain, and that this is going to happen. And I, I made note that nowhere in John 5 does Jesus delineate for us the timing of these events. And so I mentioned that maybe this Sunday we would do that, and I kind of started down another path, not really going this direction, and eventually I decided we should just deal with the timing of it. Reason being is because we, our minds are fresh on the subject of resurrection, bodily resurrection, and the eternal implications of that, and what that means and what that's going to look like. So there's no better time than the present to answer the question, when will these things take place? When will the dead rise? And so I can't foresee any time in the Gospel of John where we're going to be this close to this subject of resurrection. We're going to be talking about resurrection, but never this element of resurrection, our resurrection the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And so there's no better time than right now while our minds are fresh on the subject to deal with the question of when. So that's what we're going to talk about today, when. And besides, you're really in no hurry to get through John 5, are you? Or John, the Gospel of John? We have until the resurrection of the just to do it. So we have all kinds of time, right? Or maybe not. I don't know. Because you have to find out today, when is this going to happen? When will the dead be raised. This gets into the subject of eschatology, and all of us have questions about the future. We want to know, what does the future hold? What does it look like? When God finally wraps up this entire clam bake that we are part of, and this whole thing settles down, and the end of God's redemptive plan comes to a conclusion, when it's all consummated, it's all culminated, it's all concluded, when the whole thing is wrapped up, what's that going to look like? How is this redemptive plan of God, which was began in eternity past, how will that conclude? And what will the fulfillment of God's promises and God's word look like? We want to know, when I die, will I get an eternal body when I die? Or is my eternal body something that will come at some point in the future? Are the dead raised all at one time, the righteous and the unrighteous? Or are those two separate events separated by a period of time? 
And what about the Old Testament saints? And what about the New Testament saints? And what is eternity going to look like? And how does all of this fit in with the new heavens and the new earth? So we're going to jump into that today. I have a lot of ground to cover. And as I said, this is going to cause us to dive into the issue of eschatology. E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. Eschatology. Just stop with the spelling lesson, Jim, and get on with the thing. Okay, eschatology. Eschatology sounds like a big word. It's really not. It's really not a complicated word. It just means a study of end time events or end things. What are the last things? What does the redemptive plan of God look like from this point forward? What are the next events on God's calendar and how is this going to unfold? That's what eschatology is. Now the church historically and presently has anything but a uniform view of the end times. Anything but a uniform view. In fact, eschatology is kind of like a Baskin and Robbins. There are at least 31 flavors, many of which pique your interest, some of which you've never heard of and, and never even imagined, and a few that you're not even interested in sampling. That's kind of what eschatology is in the church. And it seems like there's no quicker road to fame than for somebody to come up with a text of Scripture and some novel interpretation of that text and build an entire theological structure around it and then put it out on the Internet and gain a following and offer the 31st flavor. There are all types of different things that tie into this issue of eschatology or the study of the last things. There's dispensationalists and covenantalists, or dispensational theologians and covenantal uh, theologians. There are pre-tribbers and mid-tribbers and pre-wrath-rathers, and then there are post-tribbers, and there are premillennialists and amillennialists and postmillennialists, and there are preterists and hyper-preterists and mild-preterists and Baptist preterists, and I mean, and all of those ingredients go into making whatever flavor of eschatology happens to rule the day. And I'm not at this point going to get into all of the, those elements of eschatology, nor am I going to try and critique or criticize views of eschatology that I don't think are right. So if you're sitting here today and you're an amillennialist or a postmillennialist or a post-trib or a mid-trib or a pre-wrath or a preterist or any of those flavors of eschatology, and you walk away from here saying to yourself, you know what, he really didn't answer my questions or my objections, and he didn't convince me that his view is right. That's not my goal today. I'm not up here to convince you that I'm right. This issue of eschatology, though eschatology is important, and our view of the end times is important, it's not an essential. And by that we mean that we have brothers in Christ that are amillennialists and postmillennialists and mid-tribbers and post-tribbers and preterists and all of that that we can embrace and love and fellowship with I think that there are probably some amillennialists here. We are a conservative church, kind of reformed in our soteriology, so that tends to attract people who might be amillennialists or postmillennialists. So if that happens to be you here this morning, I want you to hear and hear me clearly. I do not think you are a heretic. I do not think you are a heretic. I think you're wrong, but I don't think you're a heretic. And don't take offense at that because you think I'm wrong. And I'm not offended by that. And if you didn't think I'm wrong, you would think I'm right. You wouldn't be offended by me saying that you're wrong. Because you wouldn't be wrong, you would be right like me. So we can agree to disagree on the subject of eschatology and we can have fellowship with one another. And my suspicion is that there are people here who are amillennialists or postmillennialists and you thought that this was an issue to divide fellowship over, you would have run at the first glance from our doctrinal statement. So you obviously would believe, like me, that this is an issue that is fun to discuss, it's enjoyable to discuss, but it is not an essential issue. It doesn't make you a heretic, it doesn't disqualify you from the kingdom of God to be something other than what I am. And look, at the end of the day, when we are all in our glorified bodies and the whole thing is over, then we can sit down and we can have a discussion about who is right and who is wrong. And we can do it in the millennium because we'll have a thousand years 
<laughs> Took a bit for that to settle in, yeah. The issue of eschatology. So we're not going to divide over it. And I'm not here to convince my non-premillennialist friends that I'm right and that you are wrong. I'm going to tell you what I believe the Bible teaches about the order of end times events. And I'm going to lay all my cards out on the table so you know right where I'm coming from. I am a pre-tribulational, premillennial dispensationalist. And I know that my Calvinist friends would say, how can you possibly be a dispensationalist and a Calvinist? I am. And a lot of people are. And there are a lot of good pre... Uh, yeah. There are a lot of people that are good, that are like me, and I'm lovable, you're lovable, we can all love one another. I am a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial dispensationalist. Let me cash that out for those of you who maybe are not understanding exactly what I'm saying. By pre-tribulational, I mean this, that I believe that the church will be raptured prior to the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year tribulation period that the book of Revelation mentions. I believe the church will be snatched away prior to that event, and that there will be at least a seven-year period of, of tribulation after that, when the church will be gone. I don't believe that the church is going to be raptured mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-wrath, or post-trib, but pre-tribulation. By pre-millennial, I mean that I believe that the 1,000 years mentioned in the book of Revelation are a literal 1,000-year period of time where Jesus Christ will reign on this earth from Jerusalem on the throne of David over a Davidic kingdom, which will be established, and all of the nations of the world will become the nations of our God and our King, and he will rule and reign with a rod of iron in perfect justice over this entire world in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy and in fulfillment of Revelation chapter 20. So I do not believe that this is the millennium. I do not believe that there is no millennium. That's post-millennialism and amillennialism. Though amillennialist in favor, in, in um, deference to my amillennialist friend, I know you don't like the term amillennialism, but I'm using that in its just normal technical sense. By... What I said was three things, right? Pre-trib, pre-millennial. Okay, the third one, dispensational. I knew there was more to my theology than just those two. By dispensational, what I mean is that I, I am not covenant. I do not believe that Israel and the church are the same entity and that the church, uh, the, that Israel in the Old Testament was the Old Testament church and that the church today has inherited and received all of the blessings of the nation of Israel. I believe there are two separate and distinct groups of people who are all saved by the blood of Christ on the cross at in that atonement applies to all of them, but there are two distinct purposes and plans of God, and that God has not set aside the promises to the nation of Israel. He will fulfill those exactly as he said that he will fulfill them. So I'm a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial dispensationalist. That's where I'm at. Now what I'm going to do to you is I'm going to present to you the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial dispensational perspective on the end times and these events, and when I believe this resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust, the resurrection to life and the resurrection of judgment that we talked about last week, when those are going to take place. So, John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. I just want, we're going to start here, but then we're going to jump back into the Old Testament. And what, what I'm going to do is sort of lay a foundation, because I, I could basically answer the question, when will these things take place? I could answer it with three sentences. But I'm not going to do that. I want to lay some foundation and sort of set the stage a little bit, and then I want to work through this slowly as we go all the way through Old Testament, New Testament. Because if I just gave you three sentences on that, then it would be very awkward for Mel to fill the rest of our time together with only the one song that he has prepared. So I'm going to take my full allotment of time this morning. John chapter 5 makes no mention of the timing of these events. And the reason is because in John 5, Jesus is not interested in laying out for us the eschatological timetable. That's not his purpose. His purpose is to show his preeminence, his power, his prerogative over the judgment and the resurrection of people. 
So all Jesus is doing in John 5 is saying there's going to be a resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment, and I'm sovereign over both of them. And there's going to be a judgment of all men, and I am that judge. That's all he's setting out in John 5. We can make a couple of observations. First, that this resurrection of the, this bodily resurrection that Jesus is describing in John 5 is not a present reality. Up in verse 25, when he spoke of regeneration and spiritual resurrection, and I use the term spiritual resurrection in its non-technical sense, the spiritual regeneration, let's just call it being born again, Jesus said the time, a time is coming and now is, in verse 25. Because it is true that in Jesus' day, and since Jesus' day, and today, and continuing into the future, there will be people who will believe on the Son of God and receive spiritual, eternal life. They will be regenerated and given new life. So that is not only a present reality, but also a future coming event. This continuing, continual regeneration and rebirth of people. In verse 28, Jesus said a time is coming. He doesn't say a now is. Indicating that what he's describing in verse 28 and 29 has no physical, no present fulfillment. A time is coming and now is when people will receive the Word of God and be born again. A time is coming when the resurrection will happen. That's a future event. There's no present reality or fulfillment to this bodily resurrection. The second thing that we can observe is that there is a distinction between the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust, or the resurrection to life and the resurrection to judgment. They are two separate events. Jesus speaks of them here as two separate events. There is a resurrection to life, one event. And there is a resurrection to judgment. That is another event. They both are done by the same person. They both are affected by the same power, but two different groups of people and two distinct periods of time. There are other places in the New Testament where both of these resurrections are spoken of. Uh, Acts 24, 15, 14 and 15 is one in the New Testament. There's an Old Testament reference where both of these resurrections are spoken of in the same place, in the same verse. It's Daniel 12, 1 and 2, and I'll read it to you because we're not going to flip back to Daniel. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, that's the resurrection to, ju- to life, but others to disgrace, and listen, everlasting contempt. Some people say the Old Testament doesn't teach everlasting hell. It does. It teaches an everlasting resurrection to everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, 1 and 2. There's a resurrection to everlasting life and there's a resurrection to everlasting contempt. Two different resurrections. Now Daniel in typical Old Testament prophetic style is describing these two events as if they take place together, but they don't. In Acts 24, 14 and 15, Paul, in his address to Felix, says to Felix, I admit to you, according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. They are distinguished one from another because these two events do not take place at the same period of time. In other words, there's not one event where everybody is raised together. There are two separate and distinct resurrections. Follow me so far? Now turn back to the book of Job. And I'm going to actually, I'm going to do, we're going to do something today that I don't hardly ever ask you to do, at least in a church service, sometimes in Sunday school. We're going to go through several passages of scripture. So you're going to need to go back to the book of Job. We're going to take, I think, seven of them by the time we get to the end of our New Testament, the book of Job, chapter 19. And trust me, this is not going to be like seven sermons. This is going to be one sermon, but we're going to be covering quickly some passages of scripture. What did I just say? Job 19? I just said the book of Job. Job 19, Job chapter 19, verses 25 and 26. Now, keeping in mind that Job is the oldest book in the Bible. 
the oldest book. Job describes events, and if written by Job or one of his contemporaries, this was the first book of your Bible ever written, the book of Job. And what you're about to read is one of the most amazing statements of faith in bodily resurrection and the coming of Christ that is contained in all of Scripture. It's just stunning. Verse 25. Well, let's start with verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that with an iron stylus and lead, that they were engraved in a rock forever. Job's given the, the essence that what he's about to say is very significant. I wish these words were engraved in stone, he says. And they have been, haven't they? Because verse 25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. How many times have you seen that, those words engraved on something? A tombstone or a rock or a plaque or something like that. Job's wish that his words would be engraved in something have literally become fulfilled because this is so significant. Verse 25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at last He, that is my Redeemer, will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. Now that is amazing. After my skin is destroyed, how would Job's skin be destroyed? There was a man whose skin was literally being destroyed on him as he was under all the plagues and the boils and all of that. And he's sitting in his ash, on his ash heap talking to his friends. And Job says, after my skin is destroyed, yet I know that I will see my Redeemer take his stand on this earth and I will behold him with my eyes after my body is destroyed. I will behold him. I will see him with my eyes and not another Redeemer and not another set of eyes, but my eyes will behold him. What is Job describing? That's the resurrection. He is describing him his own resurrected state. I know that after my body is destroyed by the worms, that I, Job says, will stand on this earth, I will see my Redeemer on this earth, and I will behold Him with my own eyes. That is a statement of faith in the bodily resurrection. Job knew there would become a time when he would see his Redeemer in resurrected form on this earth. And he would be in a resurrected body after his body was destroyed. Incredible. Psalm 16. Flip over to Psalm 16. That's where we were for the Scripture reading. Psalm 16, verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. My flesh. My flesh will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's the place of the dead. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now David there is expressing his own confidence in his own resurrection. But he expresses it in such a way under the inspiration of the Spirit of God that the ultimate only fulfillment of that passage in its strictest sense was Jesus. And that's how Peter quotes it in Acts chapter 2, verse 27, when Peter says, David has decayed and his body is with us to this day in the tomb. So obviously this cannot apply to David that he will not suffer decay, but it applies to one of David's descendants, namely Jesus, who has been raised from the dead. That's Acts chapter 2. He preached that right after the resurrection of Christ. But David's confident expectation is that God would not abandon him to the place of the dead, but that God would raise him again and his flesh would rejoice securely in that. So David is looking forward to his own confidence that after he dies, there would be a resurrection. He states it in such a way that he applies part of it to the resurrection of Christ, but it is his own statement of confidence in bodily resurrection. You see it over in chapter, uh, Psalm 17, verse 15. Look at look what David says there. 
As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. What is he describing there? He's talking about someday when he will awake from the sleep of death and be in the, the form of, in the likeness of, his Redeemer. And he will be satisfied in righteousness on that day. That's David's expression of faith in bodily resurrection. Turn to Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah 26. Sometimes we think that the doctrine of resurrection, bodily resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, and the coming resurrection of the just and the unjust is only things revealed in the New Testament. That's not so. These resurrections are spoken of in the Old Testament, though we get a clearer revelation of them in the New Testament. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Isaiah speaking of not only national resurrection, but the individual resurrection of Old Testament saints. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. What is Isaiah describing? He's describing there a rebirth of the nation, but there's not a rebirth of the nation in any sort of spiritual sense. And he's not talking about the church, and he's not talking about regeneration. He's talking about the earth giving birth to its departed spirits. The spirits will come forth. They will come forth from the tombs, like Jesus described in John 5. And there will be a resurrection. And this, listen, this was the hope of the Old Testament saint. This is what Noah looked forward to. Abraham looked forward to it. David spoke of it. Isaiah spoke of it. They anticipated that day when death would have no hold upon them. And they would not die. They would live. They would stand like Job and see their Redeemer on this earth. That's what their hope was. Resurrection. Resurrection. This is what they wanted. They never got it. They never received that. They're still in the tombs and they're still dead to this day. Isaiah chapter 53. And I could probably skip over this one because it refers to the resurrection of the Messiah. But I want you to see how even a familiar passage like Isaiah 53 talks about the resurrection of Christ. Verse 10, and this is after the mention of him being with the rich man in his death and being oppressed and afflicted and not opening his mouth and bearing our griefs and, and by his stripes we have been healed. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. Now all of that language speaks of what? Death. Rendering himself as a guilt offering, the Lord was pleased to crush him. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now that passage speaks of two things. Number one, the death of the Messiah who would give himself as a guilt offering, be crushed and render himself unto death. And then the Lord would prosper and he would prolong his days and see the offspring of his soul and divide the booty with the strong. How can those two things go together in the same person? Isaiah 53. It doesn't make sense to describe this person who would die and having died, receive and rejoice in the, the reception of all that would be given to him by the Lord for him being willing to yield himself to the point of death. The only way that Isaiah 53 could be fulfilled was if the one who died rose again. Then he would prolong his days. Then the good pleasure of the Lord would prosper in his hand. That's the resurrection of Christ in Isaiah 53. Now turn over to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15. We read this a couple of times within the last couple of weeks. We have three passages we're going to look at in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Now I say all of that because what I'm trying to do is, is sort of create the background context, this expectation of bodily resurrection that the Old Testament saints had, that the church has. This is our confidence that God will do this. He will fulfill his promises. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Now after Paul has laid out the case of the resurrection, talked about the disastrous consequences of denying bodily resurrection, he affirms that Christ has been raised, verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Now Paul gives somewhat of a sketchy timetable for the resurrection of the just there. He's talking to believers, and he's talking about our resurrection, which he goes on to describe beginning in verse 35 with the the details on the glorified body and what is sown natural is raised supernatural, what's sown perishable is raised imperishable. He describes that resurrection, but I want you to notice in verse 20 and 21 and 22 and following that what the Apostle Paul is describing there is the resurrection of the just, and he says, each in his own order. That is a phrase that's not used of the resurrection of the unjust or the wicked because the resurrection of the unjust and the wicked doesn't take place over time. It doesn't take place in different phases separated by any periods of, period of time. We find out at the end of Revelation chapter 20 that it all takes place at the same time. It's one event. But with the resurrection of the righteous, the just, to life, it takes place in a certain order. God is an orderly God. He's a structured God. There is an order to His resurrection. Christ is the first fruits. It's an important concept. The first fruits referred to the, the practice of harvesting a little bit of your harvest. So you would take that and you would offer it to God, to the priest, or through the priest, to God. And that was sort of a pledge or a sampling, as it were, of the greater harvest which was to follow. And you weren't allowed to harvest everything else until you had given to the priest the first fruit. So you went out and you gleaned a sampling, you gave it to the priest, and then you harvested the rest. Christ is the first fruits of our resurrection. Because He has been raised, we have confidence, absolute confidence, that we will be raised as well. Now how much time has elapsed since the first fruits and the harvest? Well, two more decades, it would be about 2,000 years. So we're just shy of 2,000 years that have elapsed between the first fruits and the rest and the gathering in of the harvest. It's important to remember that Jesus Christ, as the God-man, was resurrected and He takes part in this first resurrection. He is the first fruits of our resurrection from the dead. He's the guarantee of what is to come. It's a sampling of it. That's why the New Testament speaks of us seeing Him as He is and being made just like Him. We will share in that glory. We will share in that life. Our body will be like His body. He is the first fruits of what is to come. Now Paul says that all who are in Adam die and all who are in Christ are made alive. The all is not universal, meaning that everybody is made alive or everybody goes to heaven in Christ. All that are in Adam is universal all because all of us are born into Adam. But the all that refers to there being made alive in Christ is not a universal all. Not everybody is made alive spiritually and bodily in the resurrection of life in Christ. All who are in Christ, those who have believed and repented who are in Christ, all of them share in this resurrection to life. Now I want you to keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 15. Flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Because we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Oh, I lost my place. There we go. 
doesn't do me any good to tell you to put your finger there if I pull mine out. First Thessalonians chapter 4. The question in Thessalonica, after Paul had left, was, we have saints who have died before the Lord has come back. What happens to those who are asleep? Are they going to miss out on the resurrection to life? That was the question that Paul wanted to answer. Verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Metaphor for death. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Who are those who have fallen asleep in Jesus? Not Old Testament saints. They're not in Jesus. They're saved by Jesus, but they're not in Jesus like the church is in Jesus. That term in Jesus refers to those who are in Christ, who have fallen asleep having trusted in Jesus. They, verse 15, we say to you by the word of the Lord, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So what's going to happen to those who sleep? Those who sleep in Jesus, we're not going to precede them. No, on the contrary. What's going to happen is in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump and the shout of the archangel, the voice of God is going to come down. The dead are going to be raised. All of those who have fallen asleep in Jesus will come out of the tombs, just like John 5 describes, in their resurrected bodies. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air. Well, what about my body then? What happens to my body? Back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul describes the same event in 1 Corinthians 15, but here in 1 Corinthians 15, he's describing for we who remain and are alive when the Lord comes, what happens. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us what happens for the dead who have fallen asleep in Christ, because that was what they were wondering about. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us about the same event for those who are alive and remain when the Lord comes back. Verse 50, Now I say, brethren, that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Remember, First Thessalonians talks about those who sleep. But not all of us are going to sleep. In other words, not everybody is going to be sown. Not everybody is going to be sown into the dirt. Some of us will be alive when the Lord returns back for this event described in First Thessalonians chapter 4 and First Corinthians chapter 15. We who are alive, what's going to happen to us? We will all be changed. That is, all who sleep and all who are alive, all of us will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal would have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the strength power of sin is the law. And it's God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians 15 describes what's going to happen if we are alive and remain. Those who are asleep, out of the tombs, then we who are alive at that very same instant, we will be changed. This perishable body will put on like a garment, the imperishable. This mortal will be swallowed up in immortality. I will be and you will be, if we are alive when the Lord comes back, fundamentally changed from one form instantly and immediately and completely into another form, a glorified, imperishable, resurrected, immortal, eternal body. And then we will all be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, 
and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which eagerly, we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. What are we eagerly waiting for right now? This event, the next event on God's prophetic calendar is this event, the snatching away of the church. We are not appointed to wrath. The tribulation is not ours to endure. We are not here for the pouring out of God's wrath upon an unbelieving world and an unbelieving nation that has rejected Him. That is not our destiny. We are not destined to that. We are destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the next event that we are waiting for is the snatching away of the church to meet the Lord in the air and the transformation of our bodies, either having gone to sleep or remaining alive when the Lord comes. So now the question is, which one do we want? Do I want to be alive when the Lord comes back or do I want to be dead? when the Lord comes back. Allow me to indulge my sanctified speculation a little bit and to be like Paul in Philippians chapter 1 and say I'm hard-pressed between the two, not knowing which one to choose. I don't know whether I would prefer to be dead when the Lord returns or whether I would prefer to be alive and remain when the Lord comes back because there's part of me that kind of wants to experience both of those. There's part of me that wants to pass through the veil of death, to suffer through death and to instantly leave this body and experience instantaneously the presence of Christ and to meet the saints there and to know what heaven is like without a glorified body and to be able to talk to people and update people there about what's going on back here and to experience that and to see that and then to be waiting there in heaven to hear the Lord say, get ready, it's time to go back. And then to come out of heaven down to this earth and to, with all of the saints, all of the church, and to see my body come out of the tomb and me go into that glorified body and be back in my body again, and then to look around at all of the other saints who are experiencing the same thing as I am, and then to say, I didn't realize I was resurrected or buried this close to you. That's interesting. I've been chatting in heaven now for a few years. I had no idea our graves were right next to each other. And then to watch those who are alive and remain be completely transformed before our very eyes and be caught up together in the Lord. Now, all of this is going to happen quicker than that. It's going to happen instantaneously. That, I think, would be phenomenal. But then there's part of me that says, but I would like to be alive and remain at the coming of the Lord because I think it would be great to be outside working in my garden and to have my hands tired and dirt under my fingernails and the smell of dirt. I love the smell of dirt. And to have a sore back and sore muscles and be exhausted and be sweating profusely and, and just tired out from the whole day. And then to hear a trumpet, and in a matter of just a couple of moments, instantaneously, to feel this body change from being sore and worn out and blistered to being glorious and eternal and imperishable and immortal in the twinkling of an eye. And then to be standing there, awing over that, ever how briefly that might be, and to see all of the dead come out of the dirt around me. Like I say, I had no idea I was tilling your remains, come out of the dirt all around me, and then all of us together be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Like a reverse bungee jump. We all shoot up and we're gone. If I had to choose between the two, I'm not sure which one I would want. Both of those are going to be marvelous events. I can tell you this, and this is not the most profound thing you will hear today. You'll either be dead or alive when it happens. If you are dead, you will come out of the tomb 
be caught up together, transformed, go to be with the Lord forever. If you are alive, you will be instantly changed, caught up with the dead who have come out of the tombs and go up and be with the Lord forever. That is the rapture of the church, and that's one group of people. That's us, the church. We haven't described yet what happens to the Old Testament saints because the church is not the Old Testament saints. These are two distinct groups of people. This is the resurrection of the just, the righteous, we who are alive, and the church. Now, what happens to Old Testament saints? And what hap- when is their resurrection? Turn over to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Book of Revelation, chapter 20. So far, we have only discussed the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of those who are His, who are in Him at the rapture. I refer to it as the rapture. And I know you would say, but the word rapture doesn't occur in Scripture. Neither does the word trinity, so we can eliminate that whole argument right away. I believe that the Bible does teach the rapture of the church. So we've described the rapture of the church, which is the church being caught up together. But there are still a group of people that have not received resurrected bodies yet. That's the Old Testament saints. What happens to them? They do share in the resurrection of the just to life. Noah, Daniel, David, all of those men, Abraham, they all receive the resurrection to life. They get glorified bodies as well. When is that going to happen? Revelation 20, 19 describes the coming back of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, coming back to destroy His enemies, to tread out the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. When He gets comes back to set up His kingdom, Revelation 20, Then I saw, John says, an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now the word thousand years is mentioned six times in seven verses. I believe it's a literal thousand years, not a figure of speech, not a long period of time, not an analogy for something else. It's a literal 1,000 years. And he threw him into the abyss and it shut its seal uh, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short period of time. Now, everything in this passage revolves around the thousand years. There are things which are said to take place before it, things that are said to take place during it, and things that are said to take place at the end and after it. Everything hangs upon what is the 1,000 years. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they who sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with him for a thousand years. That, I believe, is the resurrection of the Old Testament and the tribulation saints. There will be people who will die during the tribulation who are not part of the church or the church age. They will be the same as Old Testament saints. At the beginning of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, after the Lord has snatched away people in judgment, all unbelievers, when he gets ready to establish his kingdom, All unbelievers will be taken away in judgments. The sheep and the goats will be separated. The wheat and the tares will be separated. Two will be grinding. Two will be walking. One will be left. One will be taken away in judgment. And entering into his kingdom, the Lord will gather together his elect from the four corners of the world and bring them together and establish his kingdom. And coming into the millennium, there will be no unbelievers whatsoever. Right at the beginning of that 1,000-year period of time, all the Old Testament saints... David and Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all of those righteous godly men who believed and hoped in God and longed for the seeing the Redeemer live and take a stand on the earth, Job will receive his resurrected body and that is when Job will see his Redeemer take his stand on the earth and Job will see him with his own eyes and not another. And all of those Old Testament saints who hoped for and longed for the fulfillment of the promise of a kingdom will experience that kingdom, they will enter into that kingdom, and they will receive that kingdom, and they will rule and reign with him for a thousand years, and we will be there. So that covers the Old Testament saints, covers New Testament saints. There's only two groups that we haven't talked about. 
What about those who die during the millennium? Because there will be people who enter into their millennium in natural bodies alongside of glorified saints. What will happen to those saints? Scripture doesn't say. One of two things. Either they, when they die, they will be buried and resurrected at the end of the millennium, or their death will entail basically a instantaneous transformation from, imper- from perishable to imperishable like we experience. That's my take on it. I take the second one. I believe they'll be transfigured immediately in the millennium. Verse 5. Old Testament, or sorry. Oh, we've covered New Testament saints. We've covered Old Testament saints. One group of people, and that is the wicked. So all we've talked about now is the resurrection to life. Verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the 1,000 years were completed. This is the first resurrection. What is the first resurrection? The resurrection that he's been describing here. Christ the firstfruits, the New Testament saints at his coming, then his return to set up his kingdom, Old Testament saints. That's the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in this resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him. Here's the promise again for a thousand years. Literal reign, literal thousand years, literal resurrection. By the way, that's not a spiritual resurrection. That word is never used of regeneration or resuscitation. It's a physical resurrection, the resurrection to life that's being described there. What about the resurrection to judgment? Revelation 20, after Satan is loosed, he foments a rebellion. That is put down by Christ. He crushes that. At the end of that, verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from his presence, earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So that event, the resurrection of judgment, is all of the wicked who have ever lived, from Cain all the way to the last person who dies at the end of the millennium, the last wicked, all of the wicked, all of them, the great and the small, from all of human history, are resurrected at one time to stand before the great white throne. They're judged according to their deeds, and then they are cast into the lake of fire to receive the just punishment and penalty for their sins for all of eternity. That is the resurrection to judgment. Blessed and holy is he who takes part in the first resurrection, because over him the second death has no power. It is resurrected to life. It's fixed. It's certain. He will never die. Never receive death. Never receive judgment. Never be cast into the lake of fire. But all of the wicked will be judged. And Revelation 20 describes the resurrection at the end of the millennium of all the wicked. They receive a body and they are cast into the lake of fire where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And that will be the just thing. That will be the right thing for a good God to do to punish them for that. When that is all done, there's just a couple more events. This whole world has to be remade. Everything around us will melt with a fervent heat. The elements will dissolve. It will all be burned up. This whole world will be recreated, renewed, regenerated. It will be born again. There will be a resurrection, not just of our bodies, but of this entire cosmos as all of it dissolves and is is uncreated in an instant. And then it is recreated in a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, a new Jerusalem comes down, a literal city, literal walls, literal gates, literal streets, trees, rivers, all of that. And this whole world is recreated, resurrected, and we enter into that in literal, physical, resurrected, glorified bodies. The first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to smell something. I'm going to breathe and I'm going to say that is the smell of grass and trees. And then I'm going to hug somebody. So don't be standing next to me when we get there. 
Because you'll probably get hugged and smelled. With my glorified, resurrected body. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. That is our hope. If you die in Christ, your hope is that He will come back with you. And your body will be resurrected and you will go to be with Him. And from that moment forward, you will never, ever be out of His presence. And our hope right now, while we are alive and remain, we are waiting for Him to come back. It could happen at any moment. It could happen before I'm done closing in prayer. It could happen before you put your head on your pillow tonight. It might not happen for another hundred years. In which case, we will be able to finish the Gospel of John. Right on time. That is the hope of the believer. We're waiting for that resurrection. Everybody understand the timing of it? Resurrection to life, Jesus, and those who are His that is coming. There's an order. Old Testament saints right before the millennium. After the thousand years, all of the wicked. They go to hell, get what they deserve, and all of the saints, Old Testament, New Testament saints, all those who are in Christ, all those who have been saved by Christ, all of the redeemed, all of the righteous, go into a new heavens and a new earth. And eternity begins, and it will never end. And we will be there, never to die again. Let's pray. Father, what a precious hope you have given to us. Precious promises and precious truth. It exhilarates and thrills our heart to know that you have planned the, not only the beginning, but also the end of everything. And your word must surely come to pass. There will certainly be a resurrection of the righteous, certainly be a resurrection of the just. And we can say with Job, we know that our Redeemer lives and that he will take his stand upon this earth. And we will see him even after our flesh is destroyed. We will see him with our eyes. Our eyes will behold him and not another. What a precious truth that is. We long and look forward to that day. And may you hasten it for your glory's sake, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.